Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Joined as always by my co-hosts, Dr. Blake Evans and Dr. Dalen James from FNS Reviews and FNS Science. Dalen and Blake, how are you guys? Doing great, Pietro. Really looking forward to this episode. I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, as always, you guys know the format. We each brought one excellent article from our respective journals that we're hoping to hash out and dig into a little bit further. And it's always nice when we're able to have one of the authors for these articles join us. This month, Dalon is going to introduce us to a wonderful article that just came out in FNS Science that looks at molecular fluid, obesity, IVF, kind of all the things that we've all had questions about and want to know a little bit more about. Um, and we have a wonderful paper to talk about. So Dalon, why don't you introduce your paper and your author? All right. We are delighted to have joining us today, Dr. Samantha Schoen, who works closely with Dr. Erica Marsh at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sean. Thank you so much for having me today. All right. Yes, the pleasure is ours. I'm just going to set it up for you, and then we're going to get into your thoughts on this story that you just came out with in FNS Science. So just as a backdrop, obesity is on the rise in the U.S., something we all know, and the trend doesn't seem to be changing course. On the contrary, obesity has been exported to post-industrial nations across the globe, while the crosshairs medically at least are focused on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, obesity also has a significant impact on reproductive health. Obese women have increased rates of anovulation, menstrual irregularities, infertility, miscarriage, decreased rates of natural pregnancy, and reduced success when undergoing IVF. And all that is putting aside the obstetrical risks associated with obesity. Uh, intuitively, it makes sense that weight and metabolism are closely linked to reproductive success. I mean, BMI is linked to the timing of puberty. And incidentally, timing the onset of puberty has steadily advanced over the last 30 years or so, but that is a whole other conversation. In reproductive age women with obesity, however, the mechanisms underlying reduced reproductive success remain, remain superficially understood. Sammy, your study with Dr. Marsh and others took a novel approach to addressing this question. You used mass spectrometry to perform an unbiased and comprehensive evaluation of the follicular fluid proteome between eight normal weight and eight obese, but not PCO women, and that's important. The analysis identified over 1,000 proteins, 25 of which were observed at significantly different levels between obese and normal weight patients. We'll elaborate on those differences in just a minute. But first, let me ask you, why mass spec? A lot of studies in the past have examined the transcriptome of granulosa cells present in follicular fluid or from the cumulus oocyte complex to provide a window into the biology and or pathology present in the follicle. What does this proteomic, unbiased proteomic analysis, I should add, uh, what does that add to the, to the picture? So in this case, you know, we're using a really powerful technology, which is mass spec. As you said, it's, it's unbiased um, and it's a really powerful tool to look at the protein level. Um, so as opposed to the transcriptome, you know, and, and looking what's actively being transcribed, here we're seeing what's really being expressed in the follicular fluid, which 
is obviously so important because that's the micro environment for the oocyte. Um, and so this, this was a really wonderful tool to be able to start to understand some of those protein differences. Uh, proteomics is also a really great tool for identifying novel biomarkers because identifying these proteins then allows you to do further downstream studies um, looking at protein alterations. Yeah, I've always uh, thought about that as a transcriptomics are hailed as giving the great insight, but it doesn't really tell you exactly what's going on on the ground, right? So a lot of times there's these post-transcriptional modifications or regulation that modulates whether or not these prote proteins are present and acting. So yeah, that was my takeaway too, is that you're really getting a glimpse of what's going on right there in the follicle at the protein level. And you highlighted this really select uh, subset of proteins that, that seem to be differentially expressed. One major takeaway for me was the upregulation of inflammatory cytokines, C-reactive proteins, CCL16, 18, TNF receptor, and also factors like leptin, inhibin beta E chain that have been linked to both insulin resistance and fertility. So it feels like the difference, differences are not only real, but meaningful. Uh, what's your 10,000 foot interpretation of what's going on in these patients, if you had to speculate? I think you sort of hit the, the nail on the head um, in talking about, there were some things that we expected to see, right? So, you know, it's well known that obesity is associated with increased inflammatory markers like CRP. And it makes sense that you would see that at the level of the follicle, um, because really serum is a filtrate. Um, and so some of those things were expected, although certainly not to the degree, um, you know, CRP was 11 fold higher, which is just so much higher than you expect to see in proteomic studies. Um, similarly, leptin, right, a well-known obesity marker, um, that wasn't surprising to see, but there were other things that were a little bit less expected or unclear. So for example, angiotensigen was a really interesting finding. You think of that typically in blood pressure regulation, but, but it also has a role in ovulation. So that was a really interesting finding. Um, and there were some unusual inhibins that are predominantly produced in the liver that were also interesting. So I think some expected and, and some novel markers to try and better understand what's happening at the level of the follicle. Yeah, and that to me was really a great element. It's so, sort of like internal cor corroboration and affirmation and seeing these things that you expected to see. And there's a precedent for in the literature, but and yeah, adding these, these things that maybe uh, deserve some, some greater insight and study. So, I mean, that brings me to, to the next and final question. Where do you go from here? Is there a way that we can leverage these data in patient counseling or diagnosis? Is there a potential intervention, for example, anti-inflammatory treatment? I mean, that's not a totally novel idea, but like, do you think that this kind of further uh, supports the idea of using anti-inflammatory treatment in these patients? Um, anything that like you'd be interested in maybe taking to trial, of course, long-term, we're not talking about tomorrow, but what do you think is actionable about, about these data? Yeah, I think that that's a really great question as well. And I think for our group, certainly this, this is really nice data to, to use as initial data for next steps. Um, obviously, these findings need to be validated in larger populations. I think we need to, to see whether or not we see similarly elevated serum markers, right? So if the inflammation is at the level of the follicle or is it the level of the blood um, and how you treat those things may be different depending on the underlying etiology. Yeah, well, uh, 
very fertile ground here, no pun intended, or maybe a little bit intended, but a, a lot to work with. And I, I love a story like this, and I invite our listeners to look a little bit deeper. Um, if you're interested at all in proteomics, if you're interested in fertility and obesity or any kind of differential diagnosis in this reproductive population, I think this is a really important contribution. Sammy, thank you so much for talking about it with us and uh, for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much. Well, I don't know how we follow up follicular fluid and pivot to reviews, but we're going to try it anyway. Blake, why don't you tell us about your article in FNS Reviews this month? Thank you, Pietro. The title of my article is Why Are Black Individuals Disproportionately Burdened with Uterine Fibroids and How Are We Examining the Disparity? A Systematic Review. This is by first author Mia Charifson and senior author Gwendolyn Quinn from New York University. Grossman School of Medicine. Um, I do a fair number of myomectomies in my practice. And one thing that is very clear is that there is certainly a higher prevalence of black women that have a higher number of fibroids, size of fibroids as well. And so there's a clear disproportion with regards to the prevalence of these fibroids in these patients. And so with regards to that, this paper goes into something very interesting and thought provoking, um, looks at areas as to why that might be. So um, let's go ahead and dive into this review. As many as 40 to 70% of women will experience uterine fibroids in the reproductive years. Pretty high number. And so although most are asymptomatic, many can lead to painful, debilitating symptoms such as pelvic pain, heavy menstrual bleeding, urinary frequency, constipation, etc. And if that isn't unpleasant enough, uterine fibroids are also associated with high risk of um, assisted reproductive technology failure, miscarriage, adverse pregnancy outcomes, and preterm birth, to name a few. And not to mention, there's also a financial burden for these patients that have to undergo surgical management and longstanding history of medication intervention as well. So the authors discuss how uterine fibroids disproportionately impact black individuals two to three times the rate of white individuals. Black individuals also present with more severe symptoms, including large fibroids, high numbers of fibroids. However, there's little consensus as to why this disparity exists. So in this paper, they did a systematic review on non-genetic risk factors that may contribute to this disparity and summarized how the racial disparity has been studied to date. And they mainly wanted to look at non-genetic risk factors because these are potentially modifiable. So if we can identify them, what can or excuse me, what can patients potentially do to modify these risk factors and the disparities? So ultimately they included 44 articles and they examined the relationship between uterine fibroids, race and ethnicity, and non-genetic risk factors that included things like cardiometabolic features, comorbidities, patient diet, chemical exposures, vitamin D levels, reproductive characteristics, and socioeconomic factors, as well as life experiences. And so I'm gonna summarize what they found regarding each of these risk factors. The first of which that they discuss is cardiometabolic health. Five of these studies investigated the risk factors uh, and interestingly found that a higher BMI, higher glycemic index, and untreated hypertension sh show an increased risk of uterine fibroid among Black women. When they look at the comorbidities, they found that patients that had depression had a small but statistically significant increased risk of fibroids, as well as patients with diabetes and uh, they also, these patients with diabetes had an increased risk of uterine fibroids as well. 
And those patients that were taking insulin were shown to have a protective effect, so a decreased risk in uterine fibroids. When they look at diet, they found that alcohol consumption, particularly beer intake, had a positive correlation with uterine fibroids, which is bad for me as a craft beer enthusiast, but not caffeine consumption. This was not shown to be associated with fibroids. And interestingly, they showed that a higher dairy consumption was found to be protective in black women with regards to uterine fibroids. So then they looked at chemical exposure. One study found that there was a dose-related response to hair relaxer chemicals and presence of uterine fibroids. Cigarette smoking was not associated with uterine fibroids. And this is when I, I just figured that there would be a correlation between the two, but interestingly, there was no correlation. Then they looked at vitamin D levels. Lower vitamin D levels were associated with uterine fibroid risk. And this was similar amongst both white and black women. They looked at reproductive characteristics as well. And the following were found to be protective against uterine fibroids. Things as contraceptive use, later age of menarche, later age of first delivery, higher parity, and also having a recent delivery. And then lastly, they looked at socioeconomic factors. And there were a few studies that showed that there was an increased risk in uterine fibroid prevalence amongst lower socioeconomic status and patients having multiple stressful life events, things that included um, events such as child abuse. And these events were found to increase risk of uterine fibroids. So in conclusion, the authors state that there are many potential risk factors related to the racial disparity in uterine fibroids that have been studied, but there's still little conclusive evidence regarding which risk factors are the greatest contributors to racial disparities in uterine fibroids. Of note, this review was limited, I will say, due to the heterogeneity of the study methods and the measurement tools. And because of this, they were unable to perform a meta-analysis. And while this review cannot offer a resounding why to these racial disparities, this review does bring up several notable pathways that I think are very important and deserve further research. The author suggests that of all of these risk factors that they had discovered, that inflammation may possibly be a common denominator into many of these risk factors, and so may therefore be contributing to uterine fibroid. And so a couple of things I just wanted to mention, although this is reassuring to see there are potential identifiable risk factors that are modifiable with regard to fibroids. The take-home message from this paper is not to say, hey, if you modify these things, it will shrink a multifibroid uterus and the fibroids will vaporize and go away. And there's no need for medicine or surgical intervention. But rather, this paper points out a more of a preventative approach to lessen the burden of fibroids in those that are at high risk. And so starting from earlier on in life, you can be considering all of these different factors. And so that way, hopefully reduce the burden of fibroids in these patients. So I thought this was a really, uh, really nice paper. It was, it's very thought provoking and um, very important. These are great areas to research in the future and look further into. So I'm, I'm interested to see what you all thought. I don't want to be cynical here, but uh, my take on the approach and the, the rationale for the study, great. Uh, and, and well done, but you know the cynical part of me says I look to see which of these factors contributed to the fibroids, and it was all of them. And really, at the top, I think there is a socioeconomic. We're talking about race, and we're talking about a, a culture where there is systemic racism. I mean, right from the top, economic st st uh, stability, employment, debt, uh, medical bills, uh, uh, support, um, and then of course, you know, there's a lot of stress 
in, in these in these women's lives, right? Uh, and I think that also is owing to the, to the social economic disparities. So yes, I think there's a lot of medical reasons that contribute to this, and, and maybe are actionable or are modifiable. But like I, the cynic in me says, yeah, it's about as modifiable as racism in America. So. I think if we're really going to go after this thing, we got to go more after the social more than the medical. Totally agree. Well, bring the podcast home this month is an article from my journal, FNS Reports, entitled Embryo Morphology in Live Birth in the United States by first author Michael Abadala and FNS Reports Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rick Paulson. And I chose this study because this is an article that makes my counseling easier. And those are actually just some of my favorite studies. The primary objective of this study was to determine the live birth rate for specific unbiopsied embryos based on embryo stage and morphology using algebra and using regression modeling. And all of this data came from SART. This is data from 2016 to 2018 of live birth data coming from unbiopsied autologous cleavage and blastocyst stage embryos. And when you go SART, you go big baby. They had 223 embryo transfers points available with a total of 336,000 embryos. Um, so big, rich data set to really hopefully arrive at some of the truth once they've applied algebra and regression modeling. So the math performed here is actually very clever. So what they did, and there's actually a supplemental appendix because the math was so cool and so complex that if you're so inclined, you can check out. But said broadly, what they did is they looked at each embryo transfer and modeled it as an algebraic equation. And the best fit live birth rates were determined by solving all of these equations concurrently. A lot of math. So for example, what they did was they looked at a transfer of three embryos resulting in one live birth. The best fit live birth rate here would be 33.3% per embryo. They repeated the analysis at each integer value of maternal age by considering larger age groups, anywhere from one to nine years centered around that patient's age to allow them to build this really smooth, beautiful set of figures. And this is where I think the podcast, you miss out on some information. This is an article where you 1000% should go look at these figures because I guarantee you, you're going to want to have them in your counseling slide set for patients. You're going to want it in a handout. It's just a really nice way to look at this patient's type of embryo, this patient's age, and be able to counsel on what the live birth rate is for these patients. I want to give you a 50,000 foot view of what they actually found. Here are some of kind of the main takeaway findings. They found that cleavage stage embryos with eight cells have the highest live birth rate. I think that makes good sense for us, but nice to have data to support it. Good quality day five blastocysts, and they have their algorithm for how they define good quality. And particularly in young patients under the age of 35, untested have a live birth rate of approximately 50%. Again, a really nice number for counseling. Blastocysts with a good overall grade had approximately 10% higher live birth rate than those with fair overall grades. Again, patients ask you, you said this was good, you said this one's fair, what's really the difference if I transfer one versus the other? And finally, something that we're seeing more and more, looking at embryos pushed to day seven, they found that fresh and frozen day seven embryos had a live birth rate of approximately 25% for age under 35, which is lower. And I think all of us have intuitively been counseling patients, embryos that take longer to reach that blastocyst stage, arriving at that full blastocyst stage by day seven, probably do have worse reproductive potential. I would highly suggest everyone read this paper for more because I think it's just so rich in detail and in figures 
um, that it's worth going to. But I think the author summarized it nicely. They think that their live birth rate per embryo data that they presented is useful for counseling, can be useful for embryo culture quality control, to evaluate the performance of an IVF stim, and ultimately to allow you to control for embryo quality in evaluating the performance of an embryo transfer protocol. I wish this was a video podcast, but it's not. But alas, check out the FNS Reports article this month, Embryo Morphology and Live Birth in the United States by first author Michael Aguadala and our editor-in-chief, Rick Paulson. I agree. These graphs are really great. Again, just kind of feeding into your, you can't see it on the podcast, uh, so go check it out check out the paper kind of situation. But I mean, these graphs are so helpful. I would be really interested to know what these graphs look like in euploid embryos. You know, when you have uh, day five versus day six, you don't typically think that there's really much difference in terms of like, you know, I'm when I'm counseling my patients, if I have a day six euploid embryo, I'm going to feel great about it. In, in those labs that decide to culture out to day seven, I would be very curious just to see what this graph would look like. So do you all do day seven cultures in your lab, Pietro? Yeah, in, in unique circumstances at Boston IVF, especially if we're talking about poor blastulation or a low number of blasts, we will push out patients to day seven. Likewise. You know, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, just weighing in here, uh, the scientists to me, which is most of me, I came in like a hater. You know, I was thinking, oh, there's a lot of subjectivity here with the grading, good, fair, poor, and the fragmentation. So I came in expecting to see, uh, you know, not much difference between those groups, especially when you're looking at this massive SART database and all these different, you know, opinions coming into the grading. But I was surprised to say, and have to revise my opinion, is that the grading system seems to work. And the results, as you said, in these graphs really underscore uh, how faithful uh, the grading system is to reality. And also affirming your point there on, on the value of a good figure. I'm going to add this to that table, those two tables that we had from a couple episodes ago, and uh, put it in my, my toolkit when I opened my unlicensed uh, chop shop IVF clinic where I offer BOGO on cycles. It's going to be amazing. And there's going to be a lot of babies made, guys. Get ready. All it takes is one good figure. Well, with that, that's all the time we have for this month's episode of FNS Unplugged. I wanted to thank, obviously, my co-host Blake and Dalon for another great episode and our special guest, Samantha Schoen from the University of Michigan. And a special shout out to our producer, the woman behind the scenes making it all happen, Dr. Molly Cornfield from OHSU. That's all the time we have for this month. We're hoping that next month we'll be able to record and bring you some slightly exciting um, information of what we've learned, what we saw, and what we're excited about from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine annual meeting in Anaheim, California. Until next time, bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield.